0: a happy sabbath once again to each one of you and what a joy it is to come to the house of the lord uh, to worship Um, but it is sad that it's so empty but i am thankful uh for the technology that the lord has given to us that i have the opportunity to be with you uh through media and so wherever you are be it in North Carolina or beyond, welcome and a happy Sabbath to you. I am so thankful again for God's goodness, and as we look outside at the blue skies, we had f- uh, rain this morning and everything is just so fresh and clean. So thankful for the flowers that are out there budding. The dogwoods are uh, in, their, in their full bloom right now, and of course, to hear the birds singing. I'm so grateful for the, the gift of eyesight and hearing that the Lord has, has given and, you know, I also want to encourage you all to be continually praying for our governmental leaders right now, are looking at the possibility of beginning the, the, the process of lifting the uh, restraints that have been placed upon the citizens of our country, and uh, pray that the Lord will give them much, much wisdom. I want to remind you at this time to uh, look at the, on, on the, some of you received emails Uh, for uh, showing the handout that we're gonna be going over today and it's also on the website as John explained earlier you really want to print these out and if you can run right now get that done and and follow the handout as we go through it there are several reasons why um, I like using a handout Uh, we're gonna be covering a lot of ground here this morning and by having the handout gives you an opportunity to track with me as I'm rattling off text, and you can be making notes alongside. The other reason is I want you later to study those handouts to make sure that the pastor is telling it to you straight and is not including his own ideas that contradict Scripture. Um, you know, man shall live, uh, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God and so you want the word of God not the thoughts of men very important thoughts of men won't save you the word of God will so I want you to go back and study and make sure that Pastor Baute is actually giving you the word secondly is this will give you an opportunity later to share that with someone else important message today Uh, make sure to have your Bibles handy keep your Bibles nearby because Pastor Baute is going to be doing a number of trips into scripture today and um (laughs) Lastly, I do want to acknowledge and thank uh, my kind members who have, uh, and friends also beyond who aren't members of my churches, who have sent cards uh, at this time of sadness for our family as uh, we're mourning the loss of my mother, but I'm so thankful that she was a believer. She believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was her Savior, and we know that by God's grace, we will see her again. And uh, I was just commenting to my wife about that this morning. I look forward to that day. But we have a lot of things to cover that are very, very irrelevant and important to us. And uh, I, again, I'm going to ask for a word of prayer. I'm going to ask you to join me. Uh, if you would, I'm going to kneel. You're welcome to do so wherever you are at this time. So uh, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for the rich privilege that is mine to be called to share uh, the good news with others, to share your word and the important messages that are in here that we need, Lord. You, 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 You took the time to move upon the hearts of men to communicate your mind so that we will know your mind. And then during the dark ages, many dear souls, millions in fact, died so that they can have this, so that we can have it today. I just pray, Lord, for um, for for your spirit to be poured out upon me. Lord, you know who the audience is. I don't know who's out there. Uh, John, in his prayer, prayed, uh, or in his welcome, welcomed the whole world. And Father, we're trusting that this message will do just that. will go throughout the world. And so, Lord, you know each listener, which each listener needs to hear right now, and I pray you'll provide it for them. I pray, Lord, that... Um, that the Holy Spirit will communicate your will and your mind to each one and that my feeble words will not be heard. Lord, I pray that I claim, John 14, 26, that you'll bring to my remembrance what I need right now so that your will will be done and your name glorified. May the speaker be hid behind the cross and may Jesus and him only be seen now. We thank you for this, and I pray, too, for the technology that you'll keep it running right, Father. May angels of light be dispatched to make sure there's no interference there. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up in uh, Southern California. I was actually born on the East Coast, the Northeast, but grew up in Southern Cal. Uh, I grew up in Glendale. My... My younger years, we lived in Glendale. When I was about 12 years old, we moved to Highland Park, uh, located in Los Angeles. And um, we lived right across the street from a public high school, Franklin High. We, we lived on Avenue 54. And uh, I don't know what it's like there today, but when we lived there, it was an area that was uh, roamed and ruled by gangs, uh, violent gangs. Uh, there was uh, shootings in my neighborhood, drive-by shootings, especially in Figueroa and 54. And this was part of my world. This was normal for me. Uh, I can remember watching television with my family, and uh, shootings would, would start uh, right there uh, near our home, and we would hit the deck. We would be on the ground, but we'd keep watching TV because we didn't want to miss anything. But that was, that was normal. That was our life. Uh, our home, our neighborhood was, 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 uh, was so ruled by violence that the police would not come into our neighborhood unless there was a whole bunch of them. Uh, it wasn't safe for them. Uh, unfortunately, the law in my neighborhood was not well respected. And because of that, it wasn't safe. In fact, there are places in our world where there is no law. Uh, countries, well, there's no law. And so might is right. Uh, whoever has the biggest gun and the most of them rules. Um, but who wants to live in an environment where there is no law? It's not safe. And you know, today we're living in a day, an age, where uh, law isn't respected. And I think a lot of that is because in the Christian church, the law is not respected. And we're going to talk about that today, because the way the church goes, the nation goes. Don't ever forget that. Uh, So very important. Uh, What I'd like to do, and you'll see it in the handout, is just give a quick glance at the messages that I have been giving since the crisis hit us. Prior to the crisis, uh, I was uh, beginning a series on the life of Jesus, which I look forward to going back to that. But when the crisis hit, I felt especially impressed by the Lord to redirect uh, momentarily uh, the, the messages I was presenting. And week by week, the Lord has been impressing upon me what to share. And the first message I shared when the crisis began was entitled, A New World. And in that sermon, we looked at Matthew 24 and the signs that Jesus gave us Of his soon coming? What would be the signs to look for? And we learned then that these signs are taking place all around us right now, my friends. We are living on the eve of eternity. Jesus is coming soon. And the second message that we looked at, I entitled The Storm. And in that message, um, it was a reminder to us that God does not lead us around storms, He leads us through storms. And the storms that God allows, He allows for our good to transform us, to to teach us how to lean on Him and to trust Him. The third one um, that I talked about uh, was entitled, Why Sin Was Permitted. And in this uh, sermon, we addressed the question, why did God allow it? We looked into the origin of evil and we found that it began in heaven with a majestic angel named Lucifer who had a problem with God's law. He had a problem with God's law. And then uh, in uh, the fourth message, entitled Victory at the Cross, um, we we took a look at how uh, the cross not only impacted humanity, but impacted the universe in lieu of the rebellion. And what we discovered is that the law could not be changed. And, that, and the proof of that is that Christ died on the cross. If the law could have been changed to accommodate the rebellion of mankind when he joined the, the devil's rebellion, if the law could have been changed, Christ would not have had to come. If the law could be changed, Jesus could have been saved the cross. But the fact that Jesus went to the cross is the evidence the law could not be changed. Today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the law. What does the Bible teach regarding the law now there are many today they teach uh many many pastors today that teach that the law was done away with at the cross really is the problem with sin and the rebellion the law there are others that teach well not the whole law just just one or two of the commandments are done away with really is that true there are others that teach the only way you can be saved is you obey every single command you got to do it every right and that's what's going to save you is that what the bible teaches we're going to take a look at what the Bible teaches about the law and its relationship, by the way, to salvation. My friends, this is, a, this is the, the message of the hour. This is extremely important. Now, what I'm going to do is we're going to take a look at the Word of God. Now, we're, we're not going to look at what pastors think or say. We're not going to look at the opinions of men. We're going to look at the mind of God as revealed through His Word, which was given to us by holy men that were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And uh, and if you don't have that conclusion, if you don't see the word the Bible as God's word, my friend, you're a ship in a storm without a rudder and without an anchor. Um, how in the world are you going to know what's right and wrong? The only thing that God has given to us to determine that is His Word. So with that uh, framework, let's dive in, and I'm going to take a look. Question number one. Now I'm going to use a question and answer method. Uh, it lends itself very nicely to teaching. So in essence, we're going to have a Bible study today, and I, I roll that way. I'm more of a teacher than I am a preacher. <clears throat> so let's take a look at question number one. What is the Bible's definition of sin? And in 1 John 3, 4, it says, sin is the transgression of the law. Okay, that's the Bible definition for sin. It is the transgression of the law. We're going to find out here, it's the the transgression of God's law. We're not talking about the 55 mile an hour speed limit, okay? We are talking God's law. Of course, we're supposed to respect the laws of the land. God tells us to do that as well. But sin is the transgression of God's law. Now, I want to clarify something here. Sin is not a mistake. Let that sink in. Sin is not a mistake. In other words, you're driving down the road, you should have made a left, you made a right. That is not a sin, okay? sin is the transgression of God's law. But if you transgress God's law ignorantly, in other words, you do the wrong thing, but you didn't realize that you had done a wrong thing, Jesus says that it's not charged against you as sin, Okay? Okay, pastor, so then what is sin? Sin is consciously knowing God's will and making the choice to go against it. That make sense? God told Adam and Eve, do not eat the fruit. They took what was not theirs. That was stealing. They knew better. That was sin. So I think it's important to establish what sin is. It is choosing to break God's law. Now let's take a look at question number two. Which law is it that points out sin? We know that in Judea, they had lots of different laws floating around. Uh, but, but which is the law that we're talking about here? And I, when I mean that, when I say that, I mean in the time of Christ. There, were, there was a lot of legalism going on, and we'll touch on that a little bit. But uh, which is the law that points out sin? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 7, 7, what shall we say then is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through what? The law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law said had said you shall not covet. So Paul here is clearly pointing out which law he's referring to, the law that says thou shalt not covet is the 10 commandments, that's law number 10. But Paul brings out something here that's very significant, and that is that the law is the one that teaches us what sin is. It also teaches us what righteousness is. Let's take a look at the note found uh, right below number two, and I'm going to be doing that as we go along. Uh, The note says In quoting the 10th commandment, Paul shows that the law he is referring to is the 10 commandments. God's law points out or reveals sin. That's its job. It does not save from sin. It only teaches us what is righteous and what is evil. Now, I'm not going to do a a breakdown step-by-step of every law here today. I'm going to do a quick summary. I want to encourage you, after the sermon this afternoon, maybe go out into a park somewhere, bring a little uh, blanket, lay down, read the Ten Commandments. Go to Exodus chapter 20 and go step by step and read each one prayerfully so that you, are, you become familiar with God's law. But I want to point out some things about the law that are very important. Open your Bibles and go to the book of Exodus. Okay. Exodus chapter 31. Now, I I can't hear pages turning, (laughs) so I'm just going to assume when I get there, you've gotten there. Exodus chapter 31, (laughs) and I'm going to read uh, verse 18, because this is going to tell us something about the law It's very important. Before I get there, I want to say this. This book um, was written by men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, okay? God communicated to them what he wanted them to write, and in their own words, they wrote it. This book is inspired by God. There's one section of the Bible, however, that God did not permit man to write. He wrote it himself. So Exodus 31, and uh, I am going to read verse 18, and it says, And when he, God, this is talking about, uh, talking about the incident of Moses being on Mount Sinai. It says, and when he, God, had made an end of speaking with him, Moses, on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Let's uh, turn them one page over to uh, Exodus 32. And I am going to read verse uh, 16. It says, now the tablets were the work of God And the written and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. The only part of scripture not written by man is the law of God. That was written by himself. He he told man to step aside. He was going to take care of this one. And that should communicate to us, my dear friends, that this is something extremely important. That God himself would come down to our planet to write it with his own finger. But how thankful we are! We don't have to go looking for the stones; it's in our Bible, so we can know what it was that he wrote. So, what I'd like to do is do a quick uh, synopsis, and forgive me for the summary of the Ten Commandments. The first one, uh, the Lord wrote down that you will not, you will have no other gods before me, and so this command, this this the first the commandment number one is telling us, informing us that the highest our highest allegiance. Should always be to God. He is our great provider, and so logically, uh, He should hold our highest allegiance. Um, commandment number two: You will not w- uh, worship false gods. Um, you know, in pagan societies that create images of wh- of that represent God, and uh, God says you're not. You don't do that. Why? Because because everything on earth is something He created, and and God is unique. There is nothing uh, that that rightly represents him. And so, if we create an image of what he's like, it really reduces his greatness in our eyes. And it actually has an impact upon us spiritually. That's very bad. So, God forbids that. Number three, you will uh, never take my name in vain. And so here, God is wanting us to respect his name, that when we speak his name, we're to do it with reverence. I'm going to do a little uh, deviation here. You know, we have a way of smoothing over sin, and we do that with his name. I'll give you some examples, and I used to do it, and I didn't know it. For example, saying gosh, what that really means is God's name. And uh, that's just a way, uh, we just kind of played with the name, the word, just to get around it. Or G, or G's, that's short for Jesus. And so I didn't know that. And when I saw this commandment, and and I began to understand that, God showed me to respect his name. So I don't use those words anymore, because I want to respect his name. Uh, The fifth, the fourth, is to keep the Sabbath holy. Holy. And, of course, the Sabbath is a memorial of creation. It's a reminder that he created us. Number five, to honor our father and our mother. And so here God is teaching us to love and respect our parents. And by so doing, we learn to love and respect him as well as authority. Um, Number six, you will not kill, where God reminds us to value and to protect life, not to take life. Um, Number seven, you will not commit adultery. Uh, this uh, This reminds me to... Uh, that we are to value our spouse and our marriage vows. God wants us to have a happy home. Number eight, you will not steal. Um, So God is reminding us not to take what is not ours. He wants us to respect boundaries. Number nine, you will not testify or bear false witness against your neighbor. God wants me to be honest. And number 10, you will not covet. God wants me to be content. By the way, uh, which of these is, is, is bad? Why would somebody want to get rid of these commandments? It, it just doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't. And, and what, what we're finding in the law is that the character of God is revealed. You see, in your home and in my home, we have rules. Isn't that true? Some of your homes, you might ask people to take their shoes off at the door when they come in. Because you value health. Or you might value your new carpet. (laughs) And so you have rules. And it tells me, every rule you have in your house tells me what you value. It tells me something about yourself. Of course, if you don't have rules, it tells me about what you value as well. Isn't that true? And so every commandment is a revelation of God. That God is the highest authority in our life. That there is nothing else that deserves our worship uh, more than him that his name should be respected, which means he respects me too. Uh, That I'm to honor my parents, which means he honors us. That we're to value life because he values life. That we're to uh, value our commitment to others because he values his commitment to us. That we should not take what is ours because he values boundaries. We're to value boundaries. Uh, Because he is honest, we're to be honest. Uh, Because he is content, he wants us to be content. The law is a revelation of the mind of God, of who God is. By the way, on the very back uh, of your presentation, you're going to find a handout uh, that lists all the characteristics in Scripture that reveal who God is like. And those same characteristics are also used to reveal the law of God. For example, God is love, 1 John 4.8 and 1 John 4.16. Well, in Romans 13, 5 through 10 and Galatians 5:14, it says that the law is love. And as you go down, you're gonna find that both God and the law are described as perfect, holy, eternal, truth, pure, good, spiritual, just, faithful, light, life, righteous, true, and so on. Why? Because the law is a revelation of who God is. That's why. So important. So with that out of the way. Let's see what the Bible has to say about God's law. First question, question number three Is grace an excuse or a license to sin? You know, other people say, I'm a New Testament Christian, Uh, you know, the law doesn't apply to me. Uh, Really, is that what the Bible teaches or is that what you've been taught? There's a difference. Let's take a look. Romans 6, 1 and 2 says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin, Paul asks, that grace may abound? He answers the question, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Paul does not endorse that idea. You see, my friends, grace is not an excuse to sin. Grace does not abolish the law. Let me illustrate my point. You know, we have a very strange tradition in the United States, one that is not based on justice, that when a a governor or the president is about to step down from office, he releases a prisoner who is on death row. Okay, and Some some will say that's an act of grace, and my question is, what does the family of the victim have to, do they view it that way? Anyway, that's another question. But the bottom line is, is that the governor will release someone on death row, or the president will, uh, so that uh, they're free now, okay? Now, now that they're free and they've been pardoned, don't you expect them to continue to obey the law? I mean, have they been pardoned so that they can go out and, continuing, and continue to kill? Of course not. The grace shown that prisoner is not a license to continue doing the thing that caused him to be put in prison in the first place. Is this making sense? So grace is not an excuse or a license to continue to break the law. It is not. In fact, it's an incentive to keep it now that you have been so blessed. Let's look at the note that comes under question number three. It says, a person saved by the grace of God will choose to live an obedient life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Grace is not an excuse for breaking God's law. In fact, the opposite is true. A person saved by grace no longer wants to break God's law. And we're going to continue to build on that idea and flesh it out. Take a look at question number four. What is the purpose of God's law? Romans 3.20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law teaches us, friends, what's right and wrong. Let's look at the note right below question number four. The law does not save. It only reveals the the sinner's need of a savior. The law does not justify Or cleanse. It only shows a need of cleansing. It is God's great mirror. Reflecting the sinner's need of Jesus. For cleansing and redemption. Now there are some of you out there. Who may be hearing this for the first time. And having gone through that experience. It is. It takes time to really grasp this. And I've been praying for you. I've been asking God to send you the Holy Spirit so that you can understand this because I know I struggled but I pray just stay with me this will start to make sense so the law is God's great mirror now John read for us our, um, our scripture text let's turn to again the book of James grab your Bible the book of James we're going to look at an illustration that James gives Um, that's very important to us and to our topic right now. James chapter 1. And uh, James chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 21 through 25. Uh, I'm going to pick up a 22. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, Deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty. Let me pause there. Isn't that interesting? uh, Paul, or James, is referring to God's law as the law of freedom, the law of liberty. Don't forget that. And continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word. This one will be blessed in what he does. Okay, I want to illustrate what we just read, all right? All right. All right, I have put that smudge on my face. You can see that. Now, I can't see it. You can, but I cannot see what I'm looking like right now. By the way, I often work on my car. And when I come back, I kind of look like this anyway. (laughs) And I had no idea how terrible I looked. But anyway, so, but the thing is, it's so funny. You can see it. And we're like this. I can see your sin, but I can't see my own. Isn't that true, friend? We can come down on other people and be the biggest hypocrites when we're doing the very same thing ourselves. But in any case, so I have the smudge. I don't know. And then I look into the mirror, and lo and behold, now I become aware that I have a big smudge on my face. Now, the mirror has done its job. (laughs) That's all it can do. The mirror cannot take away the smudge on my face. I need something else for that. The mirror did its job. So now, the mirror represents the law of God. It reveals to me my sin, but it doesn't take away my sin. I need something else. What I need is the blood of Jesus Only the blood of Jesus will take away the dark stain of sin in my life. The law does not do that. The law does not cleanse from sin. The law only reveals sin. The blood of Jesus cleanses me from sin. My friends, does that make sense? You see, when you do away with the law, you do away with the need for the blood of Jesus Christ. When you do away with the law, you de-emphasize the cross. You de-emphasize the Savior. But the law points to a Savior, to one who will cleanse from sin. Let's take a look at the note right below number four. The law does not save. It only reveals the sinner's need of a Savior. We already read that, didn't I? But it was good to repeat it. But now let's take a look at question number Five, let's, take a, let's talk a little bit more about the cleansing. How is a person cleansed or forgiven from sin? First John 1 John 1.7 says, The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. And let's look at the note below 5. <clears throat> Only through the sacrifice of Jesus can people receive cleansing or forgiveness for sin. The Bible is very clear that people are not saved by law-keeping. They are saved solely by the blood of Jesus Christ. He cleanses and then provides the power to live a life of obedience. The devil hates God's law because it makes us aware that we need a savior from sin. And that's why he tries to get rid of it. If he did a direct attack on the cross, Christians would rise up everywhere. But by attacking the law, he accomplished the same thing. Thus, God's holy law shows people their need of cleansing. But it cannot cleanse. Only Jesus can do that. You know, um, I remember when I was young, I was a new Christian. I was in my late 20s. And I was attending a church in Wilmington, North Carolina. And there was a precious man there who just loved Christ. He was a very godly man, very patient man. And he, it was he that really introduced me to Jesus, and I learned about Christ at his feet. Precious man. But anyway, we were at some social gathering. We were talking, and I made this comment. I said, you know, the law of God is such a burden. <laughs> Have you ever thought that? Have you ever said that? That's what I said to him. He was very kind, and he looked over at me, and he said, oh, George, I'm so sorry to hear that. Which is the one you're having problems with? Is it the one that says, thou shalt not kill? Is there someone you're wanting to kill, George, and the law is frustrating you because it won't let you? He said, Is it uh, the one that says, Thou shalt not steal? Is there something you're wanting to steal, George, and the law is not letting you do it? George, is, there, is, is it uh, perhaps the one that says, uh, Thou shalt not commit adultery? Is that the one that has you frustrated? do we need to talk about that george and you know as he went through i began to realize that what i had said was foolish i was i had never really processed it i had never really thought it through i realized i was only repeating what other people had told me but when i began to look into the law for myself i began to realize wait a second this is good the world would be a better place if we didn't go around killing each other, if we weren't stealing from each other, if we weren't running off with someone else's spouse. The world would be a better place. Are you with me? You know what I'm saying is true. The world would be a better place. Let's take a look at number six. How then are people saved, Pastor? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace... You have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a, the gift of God, not of works. At least anyone should boast. Grace. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is a gift that is extended to the guilty. That's what grace is. There's a story that I feel illustrates this very well. Historians tell us it took place uh, when Napoleon Bonaparte was terrorizing Europe. His troops were successful on the field of battle. In fact, he had an interesting, uh, he brought in new uh, uh, military tactics. Back in the day, these guys, uh, the opposing forces would line up, they'd take out their muskets, and they just took turns shooting at each other. And, uh, you know... The best shot won, but Napoleon said "fooey with that, he just told his troops to charge the line. Now you know muskets, how long it takes to uh, fire and reload, and so they would just overwhelm the line of fire, and they were winning battles left and right. Now of course the strategy works really well if you're like the second or third guy back, but the first line guys usually caught the bullets, and uh, that wasn't a lot of fun. And so there was oftentimes a great deal of desertion that took place in Napoleon's army because nobody wanted to be in the front line uh, when they charged the guns. And there was a young man who had um, deserted and he got caught. And that uh, is punishable by death. Desertion at a time of war is punishable by death. And so he had been sentenced to be executed. It just so happens that he was the son of a widow. And she found her way to the camp and made her way to the general and asked for an audience with him. And so she went in and she begged for the life of her son. And she kept saying over and over, Oh, sire, have mercy, have mercy. Well, Napoleon didn't want to hear anything, he didn't want anything to do with this. And he uh, had her taken away. Well, the next day, this lady showed up. She wanted an audience with the emperor. And so again, she came into his presence. And again, she went to her knees and begged for mercy for her son. The emperor wanted nothing to do with this. Get her out of here. Day after day, this happened. Finally, again, the woman persistently showed up as the the hour was approaching for her son's execution. She again went to her knees. And she said, sire, please have mercy. Well, Napoleon had had enough. And he looked at the woman and he said, woman, Your son does not deserve mercy. That's what grace is. And the woman looked at him and said, True sire, if he did deserve it, it wouldn't be mercy. And Napoleon just looked at her and acknowledged in his heart she was right. And he let her son go. That's what mercy is, friends. Grace and mercy... Can only, is something that can only be extended to a guilty sinner. A person who isn't a sinner doesn't need grace or mercy. But sinners do. They need it. So let's look at the note right below 6. The New Testament is crystal clear. <laughs> People are saved solely by believing and accepting what Jesus did and is doing for them. That's called grace. Law-keeping And good works are the result of a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, but never a means of obtaining a saving relationship. Never. So now what I want to do, I'm going to change gears here. Now we kind of set this background. I want to clear the air on something. Let's take a look at at, uh, how... Uh, how God saved people in the Old Testament. There are people today that say, well, God saved people in the Old Testament by works, and in the New Testament, he saves them uh, by faith, by grace. Really? Is that what the Bible teaches? We're going to discover today, friends, that is not true. Let's take a look at the note in our introduction to our next section. <clears throat> the New Testament makes clear that God saves people by grace, and expects them to live a life of obedience because they have a relationship with him. By the way, that's through the power of the Holy Spirit. Many people have not realized that the Old Testament teaches exactly the same concept. In both Testaments, God's people are saved by grace through faith, and then, because he has redeemed them, they will keep his law, and they will do it out of love. Now, <clears throat> this is going to be a mind blower for some of you, just stay with me. So question number seven. Did God enter into a covenant, remember uh, with Israel, remember there was a covenant relationship with Israel of which the law was its foundation before or after he redeemed them from Egypt? This is a good question. Did God enter into a covenant relationship With Israel, of which the law was its foundation, before or after he redeemed them from Egypt, was it it salvation by works or grace? That God saved them because they did the right works? Let's take a look. Exodus 20, verse 2 says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So they were under bondage. Israel was under bondage, my friends. God freedom. Let's take a look at the next verse. Exodus 19, 4 and 5. I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Look at the next word. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice. Pause there. So God didn't even ask them to obey until after he redeemed them. You know why? Because they couldn't obey before he redeemed them. They were under a different master. They were being controlled by Pharaoh. Pharaoh wouldn't allow them to obey and keep God's law. The only way they were going to keep God's law is if God freed them and set them free. It was the only way. Are we listening, friends? There's an interesting illustration. uh, This is illustrated in a vision that Zechariah had. Once again, open your Bible, and let's turn to... (coughs) Sorry for my cough here. The allergies are getting to me. I love the flowers, but they don't always love me. But uh, let's turn to uh, Zechariah chapter 3. So uh, Old Testament, towards the back of the Old Testament. If you, fi- if you reach Matthew, you've gone too far. Go back a couple books. Zechariah, and I'm going to read chapter uh, 3. And, and it's illustrated in this story, too. This is amazing. And this is a, a vision that Zechariah has. Um, uh, Joshua was the acting high priest at this time in the history of, uh, of the Jewish nation. They had just come back from Babylonian captivity. They were facing a lot of challenges. But look at this, this play out here. It's absolutely amazing. But you'll see that redemption comes before obedience. Um. And I'm picking up in verse 1 of Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood by him, saying, Take away his filthy garments from him. Let me stop there. Remember, uh, apart from Christ, our righteousness are filthy rags. So now God is saying, Take away his filthy rags. Take away all that sin and filth. And to him, he, uh, he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. Those are Christ's righteousness, friends. Verse 5, and I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua saying, thus says the Lord, if you will walk in my ways. Now obedience is being introduced, not before uh, he was redeemed, but after. After. <laughs> If you will walk in my ways and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house and likewise have charge of my courts and I will give you places to walk amongst those who stand here. Brothers and sisters, until we give our lives to Jesus Christ, it is impossible to obey the law. We have, we have lawless hearts and our hearts line up with Satan very, very well. But when Jesus comes into the life, he cleans that up, and only then are we able to find grace and keep his law. Let's take a look at the next verse, Jeremiah 31, verse 2. It says, Thus says the Lord, The people, this is Old Testament now, the people which, are, which were left of the sword found what? Grace. Grace in the wilderness, even Israel. My friends, Israel found grace. Just as the New Testament Christian has to find grace, the Old Testament Christian had to find grace too. Take a look at the note right below that. Uh, It says, notice how clearly God spells it out. The reason why Israel was asked to obey was an outgrowth of the fact that God had already redeemed them from the bondage of sin, friends. Nowhere does the scripture give any indication that God ever asked people to obey as a condition of redemption. uh, He first of all redeems them, then he asks for their obedience because now they're no longer under the rule Of the Prince of Darkness. You know, when I was young, I used to give uh, youth pastors a real hard time. And uh, I was a pretty clever fellow, and I would come up with these questions that would really stump these guys. I went to a Christian school, but I was not a Christian. And there was one man, um, a, a youth pastor, his name was Roger Kuhn. We were at Camp Wawona there in Yosemite just outside Yosemite, and uh, we were in an A-frame cabin, me and my friends, and uh, the lights were out, we were sleeping, and from my cot, uh, Pastor Kuhn and I began a conversation, and I began asking him questions, me and my clever self, and I was entrapping this poor guy, like I had done others, I was just having sport with him. But Kuhn was very sincere, and he was trying to reach this wayward, rebellious kid, And uh, he was desperately trying to answer my questions. And then he got quiet. And I believe the Holy Spirit was alerting to him what was going on. And then what Kuhn said to me, I'll never forget. He said, George, you're asking very good questions. And all of your answers are in the Bible. And if you don't go to the Bible for your answers, then you're really not looking for answers. You're just playing games. And I'm not playing with you anymore. You know, in the the darkness there, I thought, I I just kind of chewed on what he said, and he was right. And it's interesting, he inspired me. I said to myself, one day I'll read the Bible after I clean up my life. My friends, before I came to Christ, I lived the life of sin. I won't go into details. Uh, I, I won't talk about it. It's been washed away by the blood of the Lamb, and I can't wait until it's washed away from my memory. But I did not follow the Lord and, and the years passed, and I, and I didn't read the Bible because I couldn't clean up my life. And finally the day came that I said to the Lord, if you want me, you're going to have to take me the way I am because I can't fix myself. And that's the gospel. <laughs> we can't, but God can if we will cooperate with him. God can. Take a look at question number eight. What is the Old Testament motive for obeying God? Deuteronomy 6, verse 5 and 6. It says, you shall what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And you shall, uh, uh, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. What we're talking about here, friends, actually, is the new birth experience. This is actually a part of the new covenant. Open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Because Paul says the same thing. Paul is a New Testament writer. He's a New Testament Christian. And go to Paul, uh, go to Hebrews, rather, chapter 8, verse 10. Paul writes, and Paul is quoting Jeremiah in the Old Testament, (laughs) For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind, and I will write them in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's the new covenant, friends. And that's exactly what was being expressed in Deuteronomy. The new covenant, God writing the law in a heart and mind. What does that mean? That we will come to see things the way he does. That we will come into harmony with him. Because we see things as he does. The law is not a burden. But the motive for obedience is love. You know, I, I shared with you that I was a, a rascal when I was young. If you were a teacher, I was the student you didn't want in your class, <laughs> unfortunately. And, uh, and I gave my teachers a difficult time. There was one teacher, however, I didn't do that to. His name was um, William Tapper. William Tapper treated me with such dignity, with such kindness, he with such respect, I would have done anything for him. I loved that man because that man loved me. And so he didn't have rebellion issues with me because I loved him, because he loved me. And friends, when you come to realize what God risked to save you and me, how much he loves you and me, you're not going to want to do anything to hurt him. You're going to want to obey him. God is very reasonable. His laws are very reasonable, my friends. His law is love. Let's take a look. Uh, anyway, love is the motive for obedience, both in the Old and New Testament. Let's take a look at question number nine. Was Old Testament Hebrew religion a legalistic religion? That's what we're told. <laughs> uh, Malachi, uh, Micah 6.8 says, this is beautiful. This is, this, is, this is what following God is all about in one sentence. Or two sentences. No, it's one. (laughs) He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Does that sound like legalism to you? That's not legalism, my friend. That's love. What is legalism? Let me, let, let's just get this out of the way right now because I hear people say that and I, go to, and I ask them, so what's legalism? And they just sit there and stutter. Let's talk about legalism. This is what legalism is. Legalism is, is, is obeying the Ten Commandments in order to save yourself. So it's really about your righteousness, not God's righteousness. Legalism is you trying to save yourself. Okay? Now, did Jesus obey his father in everything? Was Jesus obedient? Now write this down on the side because I'm looking at my time and you can look this up yourself. Nah. Let's look it up together. John chapter 8. Let's, let's look at the Bible record about Jesus' life. John chapter 8. <clears throat> John chapter 8. Um And I'm going to read verse uh, 28 and 29. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Did Jesus sin? Did he rebel against the Father? No, or he would not have been a good, uh, perfect sacrifice for us. And this text points that out. He always obeyed his father. Now, turn the page to uh, John 15. Let's flesh this out a little more. John 15, and let's take a look at verse um, 10. Jesus speaking, If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You see, Jesus obeyed his Father perfectly. Does this make him a legalist? No, because his motive for obedience was love. You see, legalism is when you're trying to save yourself, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, and you're pointing to your own righteousness. This is what the Jews did in Christ's day. They had turned righteousness by faith into righteousness by works, which doesn't exist. And they didn't recognize the Lord of glory. So legalism is my attempt to save myself through obeying the law. But obeying the law out of love is not legalism, it's loyalism. It's showing our loyalty to the Lord. I want to show you something that's very interesting. Open your Bibles again to the book of Hebrews. And I again want to tackle this idea that in the the Old Testament it was about works. You were saved by legalism. No, you weren't. (laughs) There's nobody going to be in heaven that was saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and that only. The Jew had to look forward to the cross by faith. The Christian today has to look back to the cross by faith. But I want you to notice something very interesting. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11 which we know is the faith chapter, okay? The problem is there are no New Testament characters in Hebrews 11. They're all Old Testament. It wasn't by works, it was by faith. Take a look, uh, verse four. By faith who? Abel. Question f- uh, chapter, uh, verse five, by faith Enoch. Number seven, by faith Noah. Verse eight, by faith Abraham. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah. Um, Verse 20, by faith, Isaac. Verse 21, by faith, Jacob. Verse 22, by faith, Joseph. Verse 23, by faith, Moses. Both New and Old Testament, we are saved by grace through faith in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ the righteous. That is the only way we are saved. Obedience is not Legalism, if it's done by love, it's loyalism. I want to illustrate it. The story was shared by uh, Pastor Doug Batchelor, and it stayed in my mind of a woman who was dating this man who was in the military. He was a Marine. He was actually a Marine sergeant. And he was very nice. You know, dating can be such a cloak of deception, can't it? (laughs) And so he was very nice to her, and she won her heart. Well, after they got married, a different side of this guy came out and he was not so nice. He was very exacting, very critical of his wife. It didn't seem like she could do anything right. He was always pointing out everything she was doing wrong. Well, believe it or not, before this poor lady, before this guy would leave home, he would leave his his wife a list of everything she had to get done before he got back home. And so he wrote down, you know, mow the lawn, wash the dishes, dust the house, vacuum. And when he got home, he would be there checking off the list to see if she'd got it, if she'd done it. He'd get the white glove and run it along the furniture. And if she had gotten 99% right but one wrong, he would just light into her. And this was what life was like for this poor woman, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. I want to ask you a question. What happened to her love? He killed it. She didn't want anything to do with him. Well, I hate to say this, but the guy was involved in an accident, a car accident, and he dies. And the woman vowed she would never marry again. She never wanted to be put through that again. Well, she ended up working somewhere. I don't remember, a shop or something. And this guy, on his way to his work periodically, would buy flowers for, the, for his, his office. And he struck up a friendship with this woman. And uh, there was nothing romantic in it. But over time, an interest developed. And she ended up doing the very thing she said she would never do. She ended up marrying him. But he was kind to her. He was gentle. He was looking out for her interest. He was careful. He didn't want to hurt her. She fell so in love with this man. Well, one day, she was involved. uh, She was cleaning up and went into the attic to get something. And lo and behold, there was an old memory box. Do you have one of those? I have one. Just stuff from memories are stuffed in there. She thought, boy, I haven't opened that in years. I'm wondering what's in there. I'd forgotten. And she opened the lid. And on the very top of uh, the box was one of those lists from her ex-husband. And she, her stomach was in knots. And she looked at the list, and, and she was just upset. And she said, mow the lawn. She said, well, I mow the lawn now. But let's see. Wash dishes. Well, I, I washed the dishes now, vacuum, I vacuum now. And as she went down the list of that old husband, she saw she was doing all those same things for the new one, but the motive was love. She wasn't even aware she was doing it, but she was doing it. The motive for obedience that is acceptable to God, the only one, is love. The only one. Let's take a look at question number 10. Was the new birth experience also an Old Testament experience? Yes. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27 says, I will give you a new heart, God's told Israel, and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will keep my judgments and do them. You see, we need God to do that in our lives. You and I cannot obey the law of God on our own. We are corrupt. I want to illustrate that. Okay, this is a knife. I want you to just pretend that this is a surgical knife. Okay, and those of you involved in the medical field know that um, when there's a surgery, you have a little table and there's a blue cloth over top of it and underneath are all the instruments and you pull back the cloth and, 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 and all the instruments on there are, uh, are sterile. That area is called a sterile field. The biggest danger in surgery is infection. So you need to have a sterile field and sterilized instruments, okay? So now, okay, oops, I'm in surgery and it hits the ground. Does the 30-second rule count in surgery? No. That, That instrument is now contaminated. But now think. Can't it still perform? Yes, it can still cut. The problem is everything it touches is contaminated. And that's the same with you and me. Because of sin, we are contaminated with selfishness. So even our good works is tainted with self. We want an attaboy. We want to be noticed. We want someone to to give us credit. That's self. Okay? And until Jesus comes into the heart, that will not change. When God comes into the heart, when the Holy Spirit speaks to us and says, do that, don't do that, and we do it not for show, but because it's the right thing to do, because it's a blessing to someone else. That's the evidence that the Holy Spirit now is working on the heart. Does that make sense? But until God comes into the life, friends, you and I cannot obey God's law. It's just not even possible. Let's take a look at the note right below that, uh, below 10. Here again, the very elements of gospel religion are presented. In order to serve God, people must receive a new heart. The Holy Spirit would live in this new heart and it would be the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in the person that would cause them to obey their Heavenly Father. God has only one plan of salvation, both in the New and Old Testament. God always saves people solely by grace through faith and never by works. Works and law keeping in both Old and New Testament were always the result of a relationship with God and never a means to obtain that relationship. Can you say amen to that? That's precious. Number 11, therefore, are the Ten Commandments binding for New Testament Christians? Matthew 19, 17, and by the way, this is just a few texts. I can give you slew of texts. Matthew 19, 17, but if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, Jesus said. You see, just like a wedding has vows, to honor, cherish, be faithful unto death. The relationship between a Christian and Christ has also a covenant. And that's the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says, if you love me, the evidence will be that you will want to keep them. Those are the words of Christ, not mine. Revelation twenty two fourteen Blessed are they that do his commandments. How will they be blessed? The gates of heaven will be open to them. Look up that text. Read the rest of the text. That's what it says. The gates of, of, of New Jerusalem will be open to those who made the choice to come into harmony with Jesus. And then one we looked at last week, 1 John 2, 3, and 4. It says, by, now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Open your Bibles to chapter 7 of Matthew. Chapter 7 of Matthew. In the very end, my friends, there's going to be a lot of Christians who are in for a big surprise. Matthew chapter 7. And I'm going to pick up in verse 21. These are the words of Jesus. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me pause there. Who calls Jesus Lord? Do Buddhists call Jesus Lord? Do Hindus call Jesus Lord? Do Muslims call Jesus Lord? No. It's Christians. This warning, atheists don't call Jesus Lord. This warning is to Christians who claim to be Christians. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we cast out demons in your name? And done many wonders, many miracles in your name? These are pretty active Christians, don't you think? They were prophesying, casting out demons. They were doing miracles. But look what Jesus says to them. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice what? Lawlessness. Whose law? His law. They were Christians that gave lip service, but not life service. They wouldn't surrender their hearts to the Lord. They wanted to be the captain of their own ship and not allowed him to be. They lived in rebellion against God's law. That's awful. So the big question is, how does this happen? And I just want to touch on this. Turn in your Bible to Second Peter. How did this happen to the Christian world? Um... And I'm sure there are many ways, but I'm just going to share one thing here that I hope will shed a little bit of light, especially to some of you who have been studying your Bibles, and uh, you're hearing some new things here today. Uh, 2 Peter, uh, let's go to chapter 3. Now, before I read this, <clears throat> if, if you want to teach that the law of God was done away with, or some aspect of the law... You cannot quote Jesus if you're going to do that. You can't quote John, the Apostle John, if you want to do that. You can't quote James, and you can't quote Peter. Of course, you're not going to quote Moses. But if you're going to teach that the law of God was done away with, you cannot use any of those writers, but there's one writer that you're going to use, and that writer is Paul. Now, before we go any further... I want to say that Paul did not contradict scripture. Everything that Paul taught lined up with what Moses taught, Jesus taught, John taught, James taught, Peter taught. But, but Paul is probably, no, Paul was the most educated of all the Bible writers. And he was a very deep thinker. And if you've ever hung out with deep thinkers, sometimes it's hard to understand what they're saying. Now, what I'm going to show you is a very unusual verse in scripture, uh, verses in scripture, because it's a, it's a section in scripture where you are warned about reading Paul's writings. Do you know that if you read Paul's writings wrong, it can lead to your own destruction? Because you can use his writings to undo the rest of Scripture? Watch. Second Peter chapter 3, and I'm going to pick up in verse 14. Therefore, this is this is Peter writing, therefore, beloved, <clears throat> looking forward to these things, talking about the second cupping, be diligent to be found in him in peace without spot or blemish, and account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. All, uh, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which those who are untaught and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of Scripture. And so Peter's saying that there are, Paul is a deep thinker and there are people that use his writings to undo the rest of Scripture. And they do it to their own destruction. But let me make it clear. Paul was always in harmony with what Jesus taught, James taught, Peter taught, John taught, and the rest. It's just that sometimes his stuff is hard to understand. That's why if a person wants to do away with the law, they're going to quote Peter. If they want to, I mean, excuse me, Paul, or to do away with some aspect, but you can't quote Jesus, friends. You Won't find it. Let's take a look at the note below 11. The New Testament plainly teaches that God's people will keep his commandments. All of us know that the world is in big trouble today because no, because so many no longer feel it's important to obey God's law. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if today uh, I started preaching that all of the laws of the land were done away with? What if all the preachers started teaching that? How long would we preachers be tolerated? Not long at all. Can you imagine if President Trump stood up one day and said, you know, if, uh, American people, the... The, the crime rate in America is so bad, I have a solution. We're going to get rid of crime. We're doing away with all the laws. Would that get rid of crime? No. You would, you, would, you would legalize it at that juncture. My friends, and are we going to teach that God did away with his own law? Really? My friends, the problem with humanity is not God's law. It's our lawless hearts. The problem with humanity is that we're sinful and we need a new heart, and that's what Jesus came to give us. So, our last page, number twelve. In the last days, whom does the devil especially hate? Revelation twelve seventeen. And the dragon, the devil, was wroth with the woman, who, rep- who is the church. By the way, I just added these are symbols. And I just kind of gave you a quick answer sheet there just to make this sentence flow a little better, so let me try it again. And the dragon, who is the devil, was wroth with the woman who represents the church and went to make war with the the remnant of her seed, which is God's end-time people. And now here's their description. Who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So in the last days... Uh, The devil is wroth. He's making war with those who keep the commandments of God. Now, if keeping the commandments of God was such a bad thing, why is the devil mad at them? And by the way, if the devil's mad at you, you can pretty well guess that God is not mad at you. God is happy with you. But if the devil's happy with you, it's because he's got you in his back pocket. So in the last days, the world is going to be divided into two groups of people, those who keep God's law and those who don't. My friends, I, wanna, I don't want a happy devil on my case. I want an angry one. You with me? I want an angry one. I want to be on God's side, not the devil's side. Number 13, and that's our last question. Does God, his law, or his plan of salvation ever change? Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi 3.6 says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy or to fulfill. This one to me, it's almost comical because people use this text to say that God did away with it. That fulfill means he did away with it. Really, let's read the sentence. If that's what it says, read it now. Do not think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy them, but to do away with them. Does that make sense? No. Fulfill means he came to show us what the law looks like in the life. He lived it. His life was a life of obedience. In Isaiah 42, verse 21, the prophet said that the Messiah would come to magnify the law. You know, I'm, <clears throat> I'm in my 50s now, and words seem to be getting smaller. The words on the page. So my glasses have these little magnifying uh, abilities so that I can see. You know, we magnify something when we want to see it clearer. And Isaiah said the Messiah would come to magnify the law. He came to show us, to help us understand more clearly what it is. God is love. His law is love. Came to show us. Let's look at the note right below that. Oh, wait, no, there's one more text. Luke 16, 17. It is easier... For heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to, f- to fail. My friend, When I, on my way into church today, the heavens were still there. So was the earth. That tells me God's law is still standing. What do you say? Let's take a look at the note right below that. What great news this is. Our God does not change. What he has said in Old Testament times is the same that he says in New Testament times. The plan of salvation is more fully revealed in the New Testament but it is not different. The relationship of law and grace is the same in both Old and New Testament. God's law is as eternal and changeless as God himself. To change God's law would be to change the character of God, and God has declared that he does not change. What assurance this is uh, there is in this for the Christian. We do not serve a fickle God who changes with every whim that comes along, but one who can be counted on to deliver. And here's a beautiful quote from John Wesley. John said, This law is an incorruptible picture of the high and holy one that inhabits eternity. It is the face of God revealed. It is the heart of God disclosed to man. John Wesley, the great Methodist preacher, understood that. We need to understand that. My friends, the law of God is a revelation of who he is and what He's calling us to be by His grace through the power of the Holy Spirit. So my friends, are you thankful today that God has an eternal and changeless law, a law made of love by which He can govern His universe in benevolence? Are you thankful that He saves us by His grace, then gives us the privilege to keep His law through the power of the Holy Spirit the way Jesus did when He walked on this earth? My friends... Will you choose today to give your life over to Jesus and to stand under the blood-stained banner of Prince Emmanuel and demonstrate your loyalty and love to him by keeping his commandments through the power of the Holy Spirit? What do you say, friends? You know, I have been a Christian now for almost 30 years. The events unfolding in the world right now, is what has moved me to preach this series. My friends, the coming of Christ is near. Jesus is coming soon. And when he does, he'll be coming for a group of people that were in harmony with him, with a group of people that loved him and his law. I plan to be one of those. Will you join me? God bless you. If that is what you desire, I can't see you, but Jesus can. Raise your hand wherever you are. You want to be loyal to him. Let's close with a word of prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you've given to us your holy word, that men and women over the centuries were willing to risk their lives so we can have it here in this last generation. Thank you, Lord, that you moved upon uh, men, holy men, and 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 reveal to them your mind so that we get to know who you are and how we can rightly represent you. The Father, you saw the hands that were raised today. I ask for a special blessing upon those dear souls. I pray, Lord, you'll reveal yourself to them that every time they open the Bible that they'll remember to pray first for instruction because spiritual things can only be spiritually discerned. You are a teacher. Thank you for this. We love you. We praise you. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. God bless you.